last session, some of you may remember, we filled the board up with all kinds of questions that people asked. About oh, 30 of them. <clears throat> and, I, uh, and I said that I would respond to those questions tonight. Well, some of them. Most of them, actually. But if I answered all of them, then there would be no reason for you to come on December 14th. So I have to leave something for December 14th. <clears throat> Very often at um, funerals, of which I, in the course of my life, obviously have done many, many, many hundreds of funerals over the years, I um, have read this poem by Hugh Robert Orr who wrote, they are not dead who live in hearts they leave behind. In those whom they have blessed, they live a life again and shall live through the years eternal life and grow each day more beautiful as time declares their good, forgets the rest, and proves their immortality. This uh, poetic notion of Hugh Robert Orr is a particular version of life after death. They are not dead who live in hearts they leave behind. The idea not of, of some kind of uh, enduring physicality or even consciousness, but the idea that uh, one of the ways that we achieve immortality is through our own memory, that is the memory of our uniqueness and our being and who we are that carries on after us similar to the idea that um, we've all heard often, I'm sure, that we live on in the deeds that we perform. What Jewish tradition, uh, in its own traditional way, would say that the only thing we carry with us into the world to come are our mitzvot. That our mitzvot, in fact, according to traditional Judaism, go, literally go before us and plead our case in the heavenly court um, where God hangs out and judges everybody, according to Jewish tradition. And so the mitzvot that we do, they sort of go before us and tell God that we should get into Gan Eden, into the Garden of Eden, and not some other place that's less desirable after our death. Um, a more contemporary version of that literally is what I just mentioned. That is that our mitzvot are the, the things that we do that matter in the world. Our mitzvot are the spiritual obligations, the religious obligations, the ethics, the values that we, we live and therefore pass on through who we are and what we do. The acts that we perform in our lives that people either not only talk about after we are gone physically, but that have impacted their lives and touched their lives and changed their lives. If I went around the room, which I won't right now, but I will at some point, if I went around the room and uh, asked you to think about people who you love or people who have died, who have t affected your life in a positive way, whether they're relatives or not, everybody can think of somebody. And often many people who have affected your life in a positive way and who <coughs> on some level carry on through you, through you remembering. I mean, when I do parenting workshops, I'll, very often I will ask parents to think about 
you know, sayings that their parents told them that they then either repeat to their own kids or that goes through their minds when they're about to do something. You know, things like little pithy sayings that some parents pass on to their kids. Uh, anybody have one as an example? Use your head. There's one. <laughs> it reveals a lot about people's parents when they ask this. Yeah. A couple other ones. Just, you know, what? Time and place for everything. Do what you have to do before you do what you want to do. Say yes to life. Beautiful. The heart of the Say yes to life. Beautiful. Yeah. Little children, that was for you guys. Little children, little problems, big children. Don't resent anything you do. Don't borrow trouble. Children should be, look at all the things. I could go on all night, but that's not what we're supposed to be talking about. A couple other ones, because I know you're like dying to say that. Before your brain is engaged, before putting mouth in gear. Yes. By the way, I do have to repeat everything anybody says because we're recording this and you don't have the microphone I do, so they won't hear it. Yeah. Wayne, did you have your hand? People are starving in Europe. Yeah, that was my family theme too. So what does eating my spinach have to do with people starving in Europe? I never could quite figure that out. If I don't eat it, they're going to starve more. And if I do eat it, wait a minute, shouldn't I not eat it and then give it to them? I kept trying to make that argument with my parents. I don't think I want to, I'm going to give, anyway, yeah. Is it good for Israel? Is it good for Israel? Yeah, this week. Is it good for Israel? Yeah. You can't dance at two weddings. Yeah. Okay. And I don't even speak Yiddish. Okay, but well, I'm going to stop this because we'll just do this all night. So in any event, um, you can tell me later. If we get around to it, we'll do some more of these. But Okay, so look. I won't even ask you how many of those cute sayings that you remember were said by people who are no longer living, but I dare say some of them were said by people who are no longer living. And the minute you did what I asked you to do, think about something a parent said or whatever, there they were. There they were like they were next door. There they were like they were in the other room. There they were like they were right next to you, <laughs> telling you, you know, whatever it happens to be. Right there. So, are we here? Are we there? Do we need our physical presence to be in the room for us to be alive for someone? Quote. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be dead? That wasn't one of the questions you asked, but it would have been a good question. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be dead? We're talking about Jewish attitudes about death and dying and afterlife. By the way, in case you haven't noticed by now, I'll just be explicit about it. Um, it's really impossible to say this is the Jewish attitude about just about anything. Fill in the blank. Because, obviously, Judaism is a civilization that is four or 5,000 years old, depends on who's counting and how you're counting, but it's thousands of years old. It's a religious, spiritual civilization that has evolved for all of those centuries all over the world. And as a result of evolving in different communities all over the world, the Judaism of, uh, of Morocco 
is not the same Judaism as the Judaism of the Lower East Side uh, in the turn of the last century. It's not the same as the Judaism of Pacific Palisades necessarily or the Judaism of the uh, Persian Jewish community in Los Angeles or on and on and on and on. Um, because I, I say this often, well, I said it last time, but I'll say it again, part of what has allowed Jewish civilization to thrive and grow and continue to evolve is our ability to adapt and adopt ideas, philosophies, uh, rituals, customs, traditions from the surrounding culture in which we lived and make it our own, or at least claim it to be our own, either way, you know, and do it in our own way. And that's continuing today. I mean, just, we can't even imagine, truly, the impact of interfaith marriage, for example, on uh, the American Jewish community. Uh, can't imagine the impact in terms of the evolving of Jewish ritual and tradition. What Jewish ritual, what's being Jewish going to look like uh, 50 years in families that are uh, one interfaith marriage after another interfaith marriage after another interfaith marriage that are still calling themselves mostly Jewish or Jewish enough or Jewish-ish and doing Jewish and passing Jewish identity on at the same time they are acknowledging, celebrating, valuing other traditions in which are that sort of part of their life and a part of their family. You know, what does that mean to being Jewish? What does that mean to Jewish tradition, Jewish ritual, Jewish culture, Jewish civilization? Um, I mean, I've been officiating in interfaith marriages ever since I became a rabbi, so that's since 1976, so that's, uh, what, 40 years almost? I think, I'm terrible at math, but something like that. Um, and I uh, just had another couple yesterday. I met with uh, a, a Muslim-Jewish couple um, talking about their relationship and what they're going to do and how they're going to raise their kids, and uh, they're going to basically be Jewish. Of course, the, you know, then there's this and then there's that. And... That's what enriches and has always, literally, in different ways, enriched Jewish civilization, uh, formerly in a, in a more external way. That is, we lived in a culture, a culture that was whatever it was in Europe, European culture, and we adopted ideas, certainly about death and dying, you know, adopted ideas from the majority culture in which we lived, because that's how people thought, and how people, and whatever the majority culture was throughout our history tended to have a big influence, tended to be um, very often sort of the, the more sexy version of what people wanted to aspire to. How could I be this Jewish and whatever? Uh, and certainly in modernity with all the barriers that have broken down between religions and cultures and languages and in the modern Western world in any event, um, there is so much uh, crossover from one culture to the next that it's going to be fascinating to watch what Judaism is going to grow into and become. But it's always been that way. So that's merely the long version of there's no such thing as this is the definitive Jewish answer. Now, there are lots of definitive Jewish traditions, of which some of which I'll share tonight about death and dying and, and afterlife, um, and angels and things like that, which you asked about. So... Um, in Ecclesiastes, in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 1, just in case you want to know where it is, to go look it up, um, it says, greater is the day of death than the day of one's birth. 
Greater is the day of one's death than the day... I should have used that as sort of the headline for why you should come and talk about this. Greater is the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. So, my first question to all of you is, why did Ecclesiastes... There's no such person as Ecclesiastes, but why did the Kohelet say that? There's a whole long discussion in the Talmud about exactly this and several comments of rabbis who say exactly the same thing as a result, that better is the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. What, what do you think he meant by that? Because it was a he. Yeah. Jody. Because when you die, I'm going to stick this in people's faces and then I want to repeat it every time. Because when you die, it, your story is now being told. You go to a funeral, what do you do at funerals? Give eulogies. What do you do at funerals? You go to the funeral and you talk about the person who died and what they've accomplished and what their life meant and how they matter to people. And people get up and they share often the what it was about that person's life that mattered to them, how they touched them. It's kind of like um, the rabbis in the Talmud specifically take this phrase and they say, this is like how foolish people are with, we have some travel agents here, when they go to see off a, a cruise ship. Traditionally, they don't do it anymore. Traditionally, everybody gathers on the dock and cheers, and you remember all these pictures, Titanic goes up, whatever. They, and they wave, and they cheer them on, and they celebrate the cruise is going, this big ship is going off. should be the other way around. Everybody should be there when they get back. That's when everybody should be cheering, not when they leave. When they leave, who knows what the hell's going to happen. When they get back, then you celebrate. Then everybody's there with their stories. Everybody's there with their experiences. Everybody's there with their travels. Everybody's there with their the whole journey that's been now a part of who they are, that you celebrate. That's what the rabbis say, Ecclesiastes men. This is what we do at the end of our life. The end of our life, we tell our story. The end of our life matters. We're able to stand up and go, look what I did. Look at who I loved. Look at who I touched. Look at what I gave. Look at what I contributed. Cookies afterwards. Look at what I, you know, look at how I touched someone's life and brought them joy. Or look at how I opened my heart to someone. Or look at how I rescued someone. Or look at how I... These are my mitzvot that go before me. So therefore, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's life. You, A baby is born... Look, I hate to say this, but I think this every time there's a tragedy. Terrorists kill all these people in Paris this week. Horrible tragedy for everyone. One of my first thoughts is... Those were just babies at one point. Little innocent babies. How did they become that? I ask myself always. Same with people that walk into you know, the Columbines of the world and shoot up their schools. And the same with all the, the oppressors and the exploiters and the people who enslave other people that we have in the world every day. I mean, that was a horrible tragedy and it was you know, spread across the news and pounded into our heads as it still does because it is terror. But the fact of the matter is Every single day in our world, much worse things are happening to many more people than that. Every single day in our world, all over the world. Not only the wars that are happening, but the exploitation and sex slavery and all this. Every single day. How many people get murdered in America every day? And on and on. Not to depress you, but the opposite to say, how, did that how does that happen? 
These innocent babies that are born, everybody celebrate your babies born, you hold it up and you say, look, you know, all of that which can be and all of the hopes and dreams that we place on this little baby for what his or her life will become and somehow along the way gets derailed and gets twisted and gets abused and gets who knows what to turn into that. Gets their mind sold on something that says it's either my way or you should die. Whatever that is. And so the rabbis in Jewish tradition rightly say it's the end of our lives that matter. Much more than the beginning of our lives. Beginning of our lives is unlimited potential. We could end up over here and be, you know, the Martin Luther King Juniors of the world or whoever you hold up as uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel's of the world or the whoever happens to be, or we could be over here and be the oppressors of the world. And that's what matters. And so in that sense, talking about Jewish attitudes about death and dying in the afterlife are in part to remind us that as long as you're here, it's not over yet. Reminds me of a funeral I did. I did a memorial. I was part of a memorial service a number of years ago spectacular memorial service for a, a remarkable woman. It was held at uh, Royce Hall, in fact. She was so beloved. She filled up Royce Hall, literally, and it was like an amazing sort of star-studded memorial to this woman um, who was truly quite a remarkable woman. And um, before, uh, I was one of many, many people speaking there, before and I was backstage, because it's a stage there, obviously, at Royce Hall, and somebody who was uh, playing and performing at this memorial for this woman, we know, um, came over, said hello, and then um, sort of shook his head wistfully and said, I mean, I'm really sad. This really makes me sad. Um, so I, being a clever rabbi, said, well, of course it makes you sad. You know, it's a memorial and everyone you know, is mourning her passing. And he said, no, it's, it's not that. He said, I realize no one's ever going to do this for me. <laughs> so I turned to him and I said, it's not over yet. <laughs> you still have a chance to be the kind of person that people would do this for. If this is what you want. If this is what you want in life, then go make that happen. Then go be the person that this person was. The kind of person that people want to show up and talk about. Be that kind of person. So, that's really what this is about. I mean, yes, I'm going to share some specific concepts and theology and uh, ideas about life and death and afterlife and angels and things like that you asked about. But the truth of the matter is, for sure, what Jewish tradition has always emphasized is this day, this moment, getting up and saying, thank you, God, I'm here, and now I have the opportunity to do something to matter today so that I have mitzvot that go before me. That's what all that theology is about, about our mitzvot should go before them. It's to tell us, oh, we should act in a way so we have some that we can go before us. We have some actions and relationships that we can be proud of in our lives. So, somebody asked about the phrase, choose life, the heart of a chayim. Start with that one for a minute. Um, that I think I mentioned last time. Uh, because one of the things I often talk about is uh, to point out that in Deuteronomy it says, 
famously, see, I set before you life and death, good and evil, blessing and curse, therefore choose life. And we rabbis talk about that all the time and point that out. You should choose life and choose life and choose life. Someone said their mother. Parents said, you know, choose life, essentially. Um, So the thing to always remember about that famous phrase is it doesn't say that God says, I set before you life or death, good or evil, blessing or curse. It's life and death. It's good and evil. It's blessing and curse. You, You have it all. We have it all. Everybody has life and death. If you have life, you have death. If you have good, you have evil. Nobody has a life that's all good. Nobody. Blessing and curse. Nobody has a life that's all blessing. Unless, of course, that's how you see the world. If your lenses are blessing lenses, then and you see the world only as blessings, then you have a life full of blessings. Not because your life is inherently any better than anybody else's, but because that's how you see it. I just uh, picked up a book, a beautiful book, by the way, by Bill Aaron, who's a photographer, um, that's um, new big coffee table books, is that what they're called? Um, about 100, and, it's a photographic essay of 120 people who've had cancer, survived cancer, um, and they're little stories, and they're pictures and stories. He's a fantastic photographer, and happens to be someone that I know, so I bought his book because I support people I know when they publish books. So if you write a book and get it published, let me know, I'll buy it. So anyway, I bought Bill's book. It's a beautiful book. And I'm looking through this book, fabulous pictures. He also had cancer, which is why he started doing this, of course. And one of the things that happens over and over again in this book, people of all ages, from you know, nine-year-olds on, on up, uh, actually younger than nine, um, is you'll, someone will say a phrase like, change my life for the better. Or this horrible experience, which was horrible, turned into a blessing because. You know, cancer is not a blessing. Cancer sucks. It's cancer. The person turned their life and their experience and decided to switch the lens and say, what's the blessing in this? Right? What can I experience as the blessing in this traumatic experience that I have now gone through? How do I turn this experience into a blessing? Cancer is cancer. You know, all kinds of different versions of it, but nobody said, this is fun. This was a thrill ride for me. It was hard and painful and scary and all the other things. And then they said, oh, and now it's a blessing. That's the power of the human spirit, of course. That's what makes us human beings and not animals, to me. One of the things that fundamental things that separates us from animals to me, is animals function on primarily on instinct. Human beings get to function contrary to our instinct. We get to have minds that make choices, conscious choices, to see something, to hold something, to do something in a way that has nothing to do with our instincts, that sometimes is literally counter to our instincts, because we choose it to be so. That's the power of that, I set before you life and death, good and evil, blessing and curse, therefore choose, you get to choose what it means to you, life and death, good and evil, blessing and curses. You get them all. You get them all. Some people's lives are more traumatic than others. 
Some people's lives have gone through much more pain and agony, physical, emotional, spiritual, with deaths and all kinds of other horrendous things happening. What we do with the choices we make as a result of those experiences varies from person to person. That's the power we have. That was, you know, that was the... Um, Somebody forgot his name. Victor Frankel. That was Victor Frankel, what made Victor Frankel's uh, phenomenal book so powerful. A Holocaust survivor who said they could take everything away from me except how I decided to hold this experience, how, as horrible as it was being in the concentration camp. That was a freedom I chose to keep. That was Natan Sharansky's story in his book. Same thing. There I was in the gulag for years and years and years and years and years. Some people turn into angry, bitter, horrible monsters as a result, and I chose to be this. That was the South Africa experience. I choose to be this. I'm the Nelson Mandela experience. It's the same thing. What makes those people extraordinary is not that they were in jail or in prison or whatever for all those years. It's what they did after. It's what they did with that experience. And so, too, with us, with when we lose people we love, when they die, how does that affect us? What do we do with that? How do we process that? How do we experience that? What meaning do we gather and make out of that? What do we teach our children or our loved ones about what that means to us? How do we turn that, or do we, into something that then inspires us, empowers us, enlightens us, or do we just simply become more bitter? I mean, grief is, everybody experiences grief. Grief is universal. Grief comes in all kinds of different ways and all kinds of different, from many, many different experiences, not just deaths. You grieve when you lose jobs. You grieve when you lose friends, whether they died or not. You, there's a million things to grieve over, grieve over relationships. Grieve over things that, dreams that you didn't get fulfilled. Losses, because it's about loss. And loss is universal. From the very beginning of our lives, we start with loss and we go on from there. You know, birth is loss. I think I said that last time too. You know, it's like you're about to be killed in the womb and strangled to death and you fight your way out, essentially. That's what birth is. You know, it's, you gotta get out of here. Because this one womb room is now shrinking so much, or literally you're growing, but it feels to you if you're in there, that your world is collapsing on itself and it's going to kill you. Literally. So you get out. You know, fight your way out any way you can. The loss of that experience, the loss of that safety of that womb, which many people spend their whole lives trying to get back to in one way or another, you know, kind of just crawl back inside and like, be okay. You know, and it's both funny and it's both true. You know, why do we go into fetal position when things get scary? You know, for a reason. Um, smarter people than I can tell you what the reason is, but but certainly part of that is that's it's imprinted in our our very DNA that safety, that remarkable moment, that long extended moment of gestation when we're there being fed and taken care of and protected, and don't have to do anything. You know, how many of us would love to have that kind of experience at different times in our lives? But, you know, you don't get it again. Maybe when you die. Maybe. 
I don't know, I haven't been there. Um, so if someone asked me about uh, choose life, what does it mean? What does it require us as Jews? That is, at the end of our life, how do you choose life when we have end-of-life issues? Like um, whether or not to have a do not resuscitate, whether what kind of heroic means should keep us alive or our loved ones alive. What does Judaism teach us about these end-of-life issues, about uh, what we call euthanasia um, generally? Um, and there's, of course, two versions of that, passive and active euthanasia in, um, in the literature. Um, and I may have mentioned this before, but there is a whole section in the Talmud that talks about, and rabbis talk about exactly this issue. They didn't have the modern technology we have, but it didn't matter. They, had, they talked about it in their own way. And their own way was to say this. If someone is dying and they're being kept alive, this is in you know, rabbinic language of 1,500 years ago, and they're being kept alive because someone's outside chopping wood or someone has put salt on their tongue. And so it's keeping them alive, stimulating them when otherwise they would die. You're supposed to stop the person from chopping wood. You're supposed to remove the salt from their tongue so that the person can die. Because everybody dies. You can't stop people from dying. And the rabbis of old were just as conscious and concerned about the process of dying and the experience of death and dying as, as we are. And whether it's painful or whether it's drawn out or whether what you're doing is stopping someone from the natural process of dying or whether you're, what you're doing is, in fact, bringing them life. And that's always been the challenge of trying to figure out which is which. It's harder today than ever because of all the interventions that we can have medically, you know, of answering those questions. But clearly, you stop a man from chopping wood if it's preventing someone from dying. You, um, you can withhold or withdraw what is essentially life support if it allows nature to take its course. That's sort of the rabbinic version because life and death are in God's hands, according to the rabbis. And so it's, it's part of the, this is one of the great um, ambiguities of theology. You might argue, and there are some religions that do, since life and death is in God's hands, you shouldn't intervene at all. We shouldn't even have doctors, right? Why should you have medicine? Who's in, why should you invent all these things? Let God take care of it. God gave us life. God should heal us. If God wants to heal us, we'll heal. If God doesn't, we'll die. If we get sick, it must be God's idea. If we get better, we'll thank God. If we don't, that's eh, what God wanted. And, and there are people who think that. And there are people who teach that. And there are people who, you know, there have been all kinds of lawsuits about from parents who don't provide medication and intervention for their children um, because they say God's going to take care of them. And then they die. Judaism has a whole different attitude. Judaism, the rabbis take the phrase from the Torah that says, do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. Literally it says, don't stand idly by the dam, the blood of your neighbor, 
This is how rabbis think. And not only does that mean if you see an innocent victim being attacked by somebody, you should get involved, that there's no such thing in Jewish tradition as an innocent bystander. If you're standing by, you're not innocent in Jewish tradition because you're not supposed to stand by. If you see something happening to someone, you're supposed to stand up and do something about it. Leviticus 19, part of the Holiness Code, do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. The rabbis say this is what gives permission to doctors to intervene in your life, to heal you, to treat you, to create medicines that heal you, and all the other things that we've created over the years. Because otherwise you're standing idly by the blood of your neighbor while someone gets sick, and someone that you could possibly heal, that you could possibly help. It's the same thing. And so that's the traditional rabbinic rationale for doctors altogether, is that phrase from the Torah. And then, of course, you have to balance it against the reality that ultimately, since we all die, at some point we leave that in, quote, God's hands. At some point, you allow for the natural process of dying to take place. Jewish rabbinic tradition, the modern rabbinic tradition, even the Orthodox modern rabbinic tradition, is that, like Israeli law, Israeli law defines brain death as the main criteria of what constitutes death. Of course, people argue over what brain death is, I know, but that's the Israeli law, which is a reflection of Jewish tradition, Jewish law. On the other hand, pikuach nefesh, the saving of life, is considered in rabbinic literature the single most important mitzvah that there is, pikuach nefesh. You abrogate all the laws of Shabbat for pikuach nefesh, and you've all heard people say that on Yom Kippur, if you're sick, you're supposed to eat because of pikuach nefesh. Even if the doctor comes to you and says on Yom Kippur, the only thing that's going to keep you alive is eating pork chops, you're supposed to eat pork chops, even if you're an Orthodox Jew, because saving of your life is the most important thing. You abrogate every mitzvah, almost every mitzvah, in a couple, for the sake of pikuach nefesh, because life is so precious to us. We have a moral obligation to rescue people. We have a world that's desperately in need of rescuing. We probably all ought to be out there doing something more than we're all doing for all the people that need rescuing in our world. But if you see someone drowning, if you see someone being attacked by animals or by people, it's the same principle that allows for Jewish organ donations, as a matter of fact. It's pikuach nefesh, to save someone's life. You can do just about anything. So the principle of choosing life is aligned with the idea of allowing someone to have a natural death, because what is natural in life is dying. Judaism considers death a natural part of life. So if your intervention is preventing them from the natural course of their death, then you're allowed to not intervene and allow someone to die and prevent them from needless suffering. That's the shortest version I can do of that. Yeah. Question, yes. You have a problem with what I'm saying? You won't be the first person to have a problem with things I say. Yes. I would always want to prolong 
the life of my loved one. And where does that fit in? Where does that fit in? I don't want them to die. And I don't, you know, but, and, but we're saying, it's the natural thing. It's the natural thing. But I want to prolong the life. Okay. Thank you for that. Yes, th that is the problem. That, that is the problem. Here. The problem is nobody wants their loved ones to die. Nobody wants to lose people that we love. Um, I can't even tell you how many family fights I've been in the middle of um, over the years at hospitals with um, siblings you know, let them die, don't let them die. Let them die, don't let them die. No, yes, no, yes, and arguing and fighting because one member of the family, or two or three, it depends, you know, the bigger the family, the more problems there are, the, uh, is, uh, wants to let the person go at the end of their life, and others say, under no circumstances, you know, as long as there's their heart's beating as long as whatever, you know, keep it alive. Keep them alive. Keep them alive. So part of that, and I, I don't have an answer for that. I mean, that's, that's something you have to wrestle with. My, my personal answer for that is, um, number one, everybody should have their own um, – thank you. They should, everybody should write down what they want. So you don't have to let someone else make the decision for you. You should say, if I'm in this situation, this is what I'd like. I'd like you to let me go. If I am not going to recover and I'm not conscious and I'm in this situation and you're trying to decide should we turn off a machine or not, I'm just to be as blunt as possible, here's what I would like you to do. You know, living wills and there's a whole ver series of versions of things that you can, you can give durable power of attorney to, to people, it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is, even when people write those things, um, even when they have them, a doctors ignore half of them, and families ignore them because they fight about it anyway. You know, you're there in the room with your sister or your brother or your mother or your whatever, and you're whatever happens is the dynamic of what's happening that moment. But it's clear if you, who are the person who's now lying, unable to speak for yourself, have made it clear what you want. So the best thing you can do right now, since you're all here unconscious is write down what you would want. And then people will either follow what you want or they won't. But at least when two people are saying, no, I think mom would like this, I think dad would like that, they don't have to think because here it is. Here it is. You know, my wife has told me very clearly, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. She doesn't know I'm dying first, so it won't make any difference. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> that's the way it works. So... <laughs> But, you know, and my parents too. You know, my parents are now 93, both of them. Um, and, you know, they've written down things that they want. I have three sisters. So, um, <laughs> I'm staying out of it, that's all. I'm, I'll tell you whatever, I'm staying out of all of it. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I said, call me, tell me what you're going to do. But, uh, but that's my nature anyway. I don't like confrontation. So, um, but that's the best thing. I mean, that's the only way you can really resolve because, of course, everyone has the feeling you have. Nobody wants, nobody wants people they love to die. But here's the reality. Everybody you love is going to die. Some will die after you, and some will die before you. 
but everybody dies. This is the nature of life. You know, learning to live with that, confronting that, accepting that, recognizing that, then it's about how you do that. You know, the quality of life and the quality of death. You know, are decisions that you're making about the quality of life, are they simply prolonging death, or are they creating a better quality of someone's life, allowing somebody to live a quality of life? And that's, of course, we could all argue about what that means, quality of life as well. I recognize that. But that's really the crux of the issue is not simply having someone's heart beat. You can hook someone's heart up, you know, and they can be beaten for a really long time when they're not there anymore. Their brain could be gone too and their heart could be beaten away. I mean, as we have lots of experiences, some of them very famous cases. Shivo, remember her, Terry Shivo? That was a big famous thing. She was beaten forever, you know, brain dead. And, you know, they had a big, huge fight, big public fight between her husband and her parents about who was in charge and somebody got custody and they, you know, all that. So, yes, it's some of these decisions are gut-wrenching, heartbreaking decisions. That's part of why some of you are here. Because these are heartbreaking choices to have to make. You know, any choice you make is a bad choice in the sense that when you lose someone, you lose someone in, from the heart's perspective. On the other hand, to be loving to someone you love is to not have them suffer needlessly. To be loving and gentle and kind and caring to someone you love is not to keep them alive for your sake. It's not about you. Their life is not about you. Their life is their life. And that's part of the challenge. Part of what's required of us at the end of people's lives is to be bigger than ourselves. That's part of what's, and that's part of the hardness, what makes these choices difficult, is to be beyond ourselves and not be thinking just about ourselves and our loss, but about their life, you know, and live with our heartbreak. Because the heartbreak's going to be there. Someone you love dies, that's the heartbreak. That's what grief is about. We have grief counselors. They're right here. They can come and help you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question, but I want to just, as, yeah. as a, a doc who does this all the time, I tell people that there's no such thing as a... Okay. I, I, as a physician, I tell people there's, you were talking about every decision is a, is a bad decision. I kind of tell them that every decision is a good decision that any no matter what you decide it's like that that which way you look at it thing yeah. <laughs> um it's as long as you because you're not your job isn't to decide your job is to speak for the person who cannot speak themselves and that's the thing you all need to remember because you're not making the decision you're speaking for them if they could talk and then no, and you, 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 the, the agony comes when you're not sure what they would say. Cause most of the time, if you just close off your, your own pain, you know immediately what they would say. But when you don't, no decision is a bad decision as long as it's made with love and caring. And that's what gets me better through version, a day. No, it, it, it's just cause I practice it a lot. Right. But, um, but what my question was, was more, um, procedural. Um, I run into um, a lot of very conservative Jewish families who, and some very conservative Jewish physicians who seem to to say that it's n we can never stop. 
that it's not okay to ever withdraw anything. I run into that a lot. And I, can so you, you address? Like some, would you like me to give you some traditional Jewish resources to have at moments like that? Well, yeah. I mean, is that really true? No, no, no. I don't, I, you yeah. Don't you, you're not going to argue. You the can stay is, They're wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the answer. The answer is they're wrong. Um, wrong in the sense that, that there are absolutely traditional, legitimate, uh, orthodox, um, rabbinic responses to that question that allow, yes, absolutely. It doesn't mean, but like I said in the beginning, there is no one right Jewish way of doing that. There are also responses that say the opposite. So you get to pick your responses just like you get to pick your interpretation of Torah and everything else in life. So because that's what they believe and because that's what they they are looking for, they will find that in Jewish tradition that as, as well. So um, because, you know, you get two Jews, you get three opinions. And so there are traditional sources that say yes and traditional sources that say no for just about everything. Um, so for those of us who look for liberal versions of tradition, we can find them. Liberal versions of orthodox tradition, we can find them because they're there and they were in, in the, you know, 200 years ago or whatever, in the 1800s and the 1900s in the traditional rabbinic responses to these questions. For those who don't look for that, um, they can find the opposite as well because, you know, it depends on who your authority is. In, in the traditional orthodox world, it matters a lot who you consider to be the authority figure in this, this rab or this rab, this rabbi or that rabbi, uh, because we don't have, we don't, we don't, you know, we're not like the Catholic Church, where everybody knows who to go, who to turn to for the ultimate word on yes or no. You go to the Pope, the Pope says it. I mean, people argue still with the Pope, but still, there's a hierarchy and there's somewhere to go. We don't have anywhere to go. You know, you can come talk to me, but, um, but. But you'll know in advance what I'm going to say before you come to talk to me anyway. It'll be whatever you want, mostly. So, you know, whatever works for you will be fine with me, and I'll find, you know, Jewish tradition to support that if you want. But in the, in the, orthodox, in the orthodox world... I think a lot of people feel like they're, they're being bad or they're doing something wrong if they let go when they maybe were brought up in a conservative um, tradition. Yes, I think that that's true. It's true. There are, you know, look, we all are, we all are, we all grow up with all kinds of, of, um, of traditions, superstitions, um, uh, with learning that this is how you do things, or that's how you do things, or this is what you don't do, or this is what you don't, don't do, you know, what you do. That just like when I asked before, what did your parents teach you or tell you? Well. That extends to every aspect of life. Your parents taught you, or this depends on which community you grow up in, what you learn, what's the right way to do things, what's the right thing to do. And, um, and when it comes to life and death issues, guilt is rampant. You know, everybody's guilty around life and death issues. What if, if should I have that, I should have this, I should have done this earlier, I should have done that sooner, I should have talked to them about this. You know, that's, those are endless if onlys, and things I should have said or should have done about these powerful issues, about every powerful issue. That's, you know, that's endless. So, yes, you are going to inevitably run into people who feel bad and feel guilty about um, any decision they make, really. 
Like, won't God just come and take this person so that it's out of my hands? You know, having me having to make choices about someone else's life is a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying responsibility. Nobody even wants that responsibility to have to make those kind of decisions. What I am saying is, if you want to look through a Jewish lens, you can look through a Jewish lens legitimately and say, quality of life matters, everybody dies, uh, and what you said a moment ago, which I thought was eloquent and beautiful, it's not about you. You're speaking for that person who hasn't spoken. That's why I said everybody should write down what they want. So you don't have to have someone try to guess how to make those decisions. The person has made that decision. And, you, and then you are their advocate and you're speaking on their behalf. You know, okay, enough of that. So, um, resurrection. I'm just going to go through some of these things. Judaism and resurrection. People ask me about Judaism and resurrection. Maybe you see this list. So, here's the thing about Judaism and resurrection. I want to ask you how many people think that Jews believe in resurrection, but they do. <laughs> Belief in resurrection of the body and the soul at one point was a basic Jewish doctrine. It's basic fundamental Jewish doctrine, resurrection of the body, resurrection of the soul. Not in the 21st century, not basic in the 20th century, but um, didn't I just uh, start it out by singing Elohai Neshama? Uh, and talk, all, there's a whole series of prayers, some of which are even in our prayer book. I didn't grab them out, but you have to trust me on that. Some of which are in our prayer book that talk about in Mechayeham 18, which is who revives the dead. That we've changed some of the language to make it a little more contemporary in the Reconstruction's version, but the traditional prayer is you thank God for Mechayeham 18, for reviving the dead. There is this whole very elaborate traditional Jewish notion that uh, I, I mentioned it last time, as a matter of fact, that at the end of days, when the Messiah comes and everything, and God decides that the world is already ready for the end of days, all of us are going to be resurrected. Our bodies are going to, we're going to end up with our bodies. There's dif discussions about which version of our bodies we're going to end up with. But um, my wife works for a plastic surgeon, so you can guess which version she likes. But um, anyway, the, there's all these different traditions of based on the fact that we are physically going to be resurrected and all live in Jerusalem again together at one point. Um, That's not a Christian thing? Well, it's also a Christian thing. Yes, it's also a Jewish thing. Jews and Christians have a lot of things in common. They do it their version, we do it our version. So uh, it was around the same a time that Christianity was created, invented, and came into being. You may have heard of the famous Sadducees and the Pharisees and those things. So they disagreed about it. Uh, the Pharisees taught, under the earth, there will be rewards and punishments according as they have lived virtuously or not in this life. And uh, those who have not will be detained in an everlasting prison of some kind. And those who have lived virtuously will have the power to revive and live again. It's a classic sort of uh, Pharisaic teaching. The Sadducees uh, argued, souls die with the bodies. It's the end. You go to the earth. You're done. They were ahead of their time, uh, period. But that was around the time that, that Christianity came into being. So yes, it became a Christian concept. I don't know how it started exactly, but uh, we're coming up to, to which holiday is the next holiday? It's a little pop quiz. Thanksgiving. 
And the next Jewish holiday after that is Hanukkah. Exactly. So, in Hanukkah, there was a Maccabean revolt. Lots of things happened as a result of the Maccabean revolt that were new, that were innovations. The first thing that happened was the idea of pikuach nefesh, saving life, took precedence over Shabbat. That started in the Maccabean revolt. Because during the first Maccabean revolt, with, uh, you know, Judah and his merry band, his brothers and his father, people didn't fight on Shabbat. They put their, you can't fight on Shabbat, and they got slaughtered. So every time they got found, it was, it was Shabbat, they wouldn't fight, they got killed. So they created the idea of pikuach nefesh, docheh ha-Shabbat, that pikuach nefesh, the saving of life, is more important than Shabbat, so that they could fight on in the Maccabean Revolt. That's where the whole idea came from, originally. So apart from that, just a little touch of whatever. In the Maccabean Revolt, which is in the 2nd century BCE, people were dying, it was a huge slaughter. Lots of people were dying for their faith. And so, God calling me here. The, uh, the idea of resurrection as a reward emerged during the Maccabean Revolt and became firmly planted as a Jewish idea. Uh, it's a quote. Rabbi Meir in the Talmud said, you can find resurrection in the Torah because it says, then will Moses and the children of Israel sing this song to God. This is how rabbis decide what they want to say and then find a way of saying it. Okay? So, it says in the Torah, then will Moses and the children of Israel sing this song to God. Rabbi Meir said it doesn't say sang this song. It says, we'll sing this song. When are they going to sing this song? They're already dead. Well, obviously, there's going to be resurrection. They'll be able to sing when they get resurrected. What can I tell you? There's a phrase in the Talmud. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. What does that mean? What's the world to come? How are they going to have a share in the world to come? The traditional rabbinic notion is you die, but then you're going to come back, so you have a share in the world to come. It's literally, resurrection. But then there's a phrase in the Talmud that says, all Israelites have a share in the world to come, except those who say there's no resurrection of the dead. <laughs> or that the Torah isn't from heaven. That's in uh, Sanhedrin, in the Talmud. That everybody has a share in the world to come, unless... You reject the idea of resurrection. They were so, it was so powerful. The reason I'm sharing that with you is only because it was such a powerful idea. Who wouldn't like that idea? I mean, you can see why that would catch on. Nobody wants to die. So the idea that I could, you could be promised that you're going to come back is pretty attractive. You know, you're going to come, don't worry. I know you're going to die, but don't worry about it because you're going to come back. So resurrection became a constant and consistent rabbinic notion. Um, and how could this happen? People would ask, well, the, the rabbis, how, what do you mean, resurrection? How could, you, how could that happen? And the rabbis would say, because, you know, they weren't dumb ever in any era, just because they didn't have the same scientific knowledge we have. They watched bodies. They were much more intimately involved in death and dying than we are. Most of us, it's sanitized. We don't even see anybody dying. Everybody in the old days, they, you died at home. You didn't go to a hospital. didn't have hospitals. You were born in the home. You died in the home. You were buried outside. You know, they watched. They knew. Your bodies disintegrate. Everybody knew that. You knew that your bodies disappeared. So it's logical to ask, wait a minute, how can you be resurrected? Your body, guy's body disappeared already. 
And the answer would be, if God could create the whole universe out of nothing, God could do anything. Of course God could bring back your body. Anytime. Which of course is logical. It makes perfectly good sense. If God can create the universe out of nothing, then God can resurrect anybody. Rabbi Chia ben Joseph in the Talmud said, A time will come when the just will break through the earth and rise up in Jerusalem. And they'll rise up dressed in their clothes, he says in the Talmud. Some people taught that as we die, that's how we'll be resurrected. You know, whatever age we die, that's how we're going to come back looking like that. Um, if, and not only that, but if we die blind, we're going to be resurrected blind. And others taught that in resurrection, everybody's healed. If you're lame, if you're blind, if you're deaf, if you're whatever you happen to be, in, when you get resurrected, you're total and you're healed and you're whole. Because the whole idea, which was a much more common idea, that in resurrection is wholeness. Life atones for whatever sins you have, cleanses you of whatever problems you have, and when you are resurrected, just as your soul is pure, so too your body comes back in a pure state as well. Obviously, reform and reconstructionist Jews, I don't know obviously, but reform and reconstructionist Jews over the last hundred years have almost universally rejected the idea of resurrection of the dead. You won't find that. By the way, this is a lovely book. Uh, this is the shortest version about uh, what happens. It's called What Happens After I Die. Um, still in print. It's um, Jewish Views of Life After Death. And uh, by a friend of mine, which I used to work with, uh, Danny Syme, two rabbis, Rafat Sonsino and Daniel Syme. Um, Amazon still has them. The, uh, and in this book, it's, there are, first, uh, the first section is sort of traditional versions of life after death, and then a whole series of different essays by different contemporary Jewish thinkers about what they think about life after death, just to give you an idea that there's a range, but it's a nice, uh, nice resource. So, yes, there was resurrection in Jewish tradition, and yes, there was reincarnation in Jewish tradition. For those who are into reincarnation, you can find it in Judaism called Gilgul Neshamot, the Gilgul Hanefesh, rolling or turning of souls, what you all like to call recycling of souls. Um, there's no clear reference to that in the Torah itself, uh, and really don't know where it came from, but by the 12th century, it was taken for granted in Jewish mystical texts and the Kabbalah in that there was uh, reincarnation, that our souls, because our souls had to go somewhere. Once you decide that your soul is pure and endures beyond the body, then the question is, where's it going? So once you decide that you have a, you, you, your essence, your neshama, has an existence beyond your physicality, then sort of all bets are off. Then you have to decide, where's your soul go? For some, in Jewish tradition, the soul simply returns to God from whence it came. and goes back to sort of the storehouse of all souls. Um, and for others, the, the idea of reincarnation was very attractive. And um, just like all the classic ideas of reincarnation that you've heard of from other religious traditions, some taught in, Ju in Judaism that souls come back in only in human bodies, and some taught that our, we're here on earth for our souls are on a journey. Our souls are on a quest. Our souls are here to learn and to grow and to fulfill themselves, to grow our own souls into perfection, and that in that journey, when we die, 
when we haven't completed that journey, we come back in another version, sometimes as an animal, and sometimes as a tree, and sometimes as a flower, and whatever. We may come back in whatever is appropriate for our souls on their journey, on their soul journey. It sounds like many other religious traditions, because human beings are the same. So here's the other bottom line. Human beings are the same. You can have a different religious label, but everybody lives and everybody dies. Everybody suffers and everybody you know, has moments of joy. Everybody has loss and everybody has grief. It doesn't matter what your religion is. None of us have a lock on any of those emotions. All of us are the same. So it's not unusual to discover that in many different religious traditions we have common ideas and common philosophies and common theologies. And yes, even in Judaism, if you're into it, you can find it in Judaism. You know, why do some people act like animals? <laughs> because, say some, it's our animal soul that got reincarnated into their body and they haven't quite gotten to the human, totally human level yet, because it's that, you know, they act like pigs because they are kind of thing, you know what I mean? So, which is nice if you're into that. Um, also, the other thing about, here's the other thing. Um, once you accept that souls have independent lives from bodies, that they existed before birth and they exist after death, a whole range of ideas opens up. One of them is, uh, we were with, uh, for example, someone this uh, past week who uh, shared about her, uh, her infant dying from Sid, sudden infant death. Well, you know, horrible, horrible tragedy. The mystics who were into reincarnation simply taught the answer, why, the answer to why something that horrible would happen is reincarnation. Is some souls come into the world for a day, some souls come into the this in this incarnation, some souls are here for five years, for ten years, for twenty years, for a hundred years, it's their journey. And in a sense, all are equal. They're just on their journey. And some are there to do who knows what. You know, that that soul came into that baby for, I don't know how old is that baby, I forgot already. But um, for some very brief amount of time, and changed the lives of the, the baby's parents forever. Right? So... In, in this Kabbalistic idea, the soul comes in and has an impact, even if it's a brief one, and changes the world as a result. Some of us need longer to change the world. Some of us grow up slower. Some of us can do it in two days. I mean, that's kind of the mystical idea of that, whether it, it sits well with you or not. Then there are those who take a more dark view in Jewish tradition <clears throat> that we that uh, the deaths of infants is the result of sins committed by ancestors or in an earlier Gilgul. It's like somebody asked about karma. Is there such a thing as Jewish karma last week? One of the things on the board. This is uh, not my favorite idea, but it's a traditional Jewish idea of, of sort of, you know, here's the thing. One of the things that upsets people is the lack of justice in the world. Right? How come there's injustice? How come the good suffer? How come bad people often don't? How come the righteous should the righteous always live well? And shouldn't the wicked always not live well? And all of us have experiences that that's not the way the world will, real world works. 
doesn't work that way at all. So, in every, not every, in most religious traditions, there are versions of that tradition that impose a kind of supernatural justice on the world. It's either you're going to be rewarded in the afterlife, that's where justice is going to come. Don't worry. The righteous will get rewarded. It's just afterwards. You're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to Gan Eden, and those people who in this world seem to be really wicked, they're going to get theirs. They're not going to get it now, but you have to have faith they'll get it later. Or the same idea in Jewish tradition applies to people dying. How do people die? It's really, it's justice. People die in this version, not my version, but as a result of previous incarnations, previous sins, and the degree to their sin, it determines how they die, when they die. You know, it doesn't speak to me, but there are those who believe in that legitimately within Jewish tradition. So some people ask if that's part of it. Earliest mystical writings, there was a thing called transmigration of souls, was a form of punishment and an opportunity for the soul to cleanse itself before moving on. It's also reincarnation is a way of atonement. We're big on atonement in Judaism. We have all day of it, right? Yom Kippur. And reincarnation is a kind of atonement, an opportunity. Some Kabbalists taught that the righteous souls need three cycles to be purified, and wicked souls can need up to a thousand. So if you like living here, you can, don't be so good. Because <laughs> then you get to come back more often. See? What can I tell you? Those ideas have been attacked and defended over, over the centuries by you know, rabbis throughout our history. Um, 12th century, one rabbi said, the belief in the doctrine of transmigration of souls is a firm and infallible dogma accepted by all of Jews with one accord so that no one would be found who would deny it. Famous Orthodox rabbi said that. It's not true, but that's what it was true of some. In any event, the reality is it's up to you. You know, this is about what you believe. <clears throat> I can't really tell you exactly what's true. I can tell you what I believe, but I can't tell you what's true. Someone asked me about cremation. <clears throat> right? Is it okay to have cremation? Someone asked me about tattoos too, but we'll do cremation for a moment. So cremation. Um, most people know that uh, Jews don't do cremation. Cremation. <clears throat> that is, it's not a normative Jewish response to death. It's cremation. Except, Jews do cremation. Go to Hillside, Jewish cemetery. Hillside has little teeny plots for ashes you know, that you can buy. They also facilitate cremation. More and more Jews are, for ecological reasons and other kinds of reasons, are having choosing cremation. Um, the idea of cremation or the lack of support for cremation, the, the prohibition of cremation, was for a couple of reasons. Number one, back to resurrection. You need your body, so you didn't want to cremate it because I know it doesn't make sense, but in theory, you didn't want to, you know, hurt your body because you're going to need it when it's time to be resurrected. And number two was considered de desecration. That's really fundamentally. Uh, I think I mentioned this last time, but one of the most famous phrases in the Torah about death is the phrase that you're not supposed to leave a body hanging outside overnight. Um, 
And in Leviticus, when it talks about it, it talks about it having to do with capital punishment. Because the Torah is, you know, which is another question someone asked, but there is certainly capital punishment in the Torah. You know, it says in one of the most famous terse phrases of all Hebrew in the Torah, it says a man hits another man and he dies, that man gets killed too. That's it's a great phrase. Anyway, so, and so there's capital punishment. And in those days, stoning was one of the forms of capital punishment, but hanging was another one. So if you hung, killed someone by hanging, not if you hung someone, but if you killed someone by hanging, the Torah specifically says you're supposed to take the body down. You know from your history, lots of other cultures did exactly the opposite. They killed someone and they put them out for display and left them there as long as possible until animals and birds and whatever would eventually destroy them as a lesson to teach you not to do whatever that person was killed for. Very popular in many, many cultures. Judaism is exactly the opposite. Even the worst person in the world, that is someone who was subject to capital punishment, you killed that person as a society because of something that person did, that person's body you treat with respect. Because the obvious, from Jewish perspective, God gave that body to that person. It's not yours. Your body's on loan. It's not yours. It's God's. And you take that body down and you treat that body with respect, even of the worst possible person. Because it's human beings are made but some Elohim in the image of God. And the rabbis uh, tell the Midrash, famous Midrash, that says there were once twins, one became a king, one became a murderer, the murderer was caught and executed and hung in front of the, out on the scaffold for all to see. And everybody who walked by said, what? Look, it's the king. The king's hanging. That's how rabbis think. The rabbi Midrash means God is the king and we are the twin. And if you treat us with disrespect, you're dissing God. That's essentially how rabbis and Jewish tradition treats the body. So even the the um, one of the reasons that we were against cremation was because we thought it was a desecration of the body. You know, um, modern Judaism, liberal movements obviously don't necessarily encourage, but also don't see it as a sin or a transgression in any way to to um, to have cremation, and it's regularly done in uh, in Jewish cemeteries. And as I said, there are special sections in Jewish cemeteries for cremated remains. So, um, that's for cremation. Uh, someone asked me about the consequences of tattooing or body piercing with respect to Jewish rituals or death, because it says in the Torah that you're not supposed to deface your body. Uh, the Torah says in Leviticus, you shall not make gashes in your flesh for the dead or incise any marks on yourself. I am Adonai. So in the Mishnah, in the in rabbinic writings, uh, Rabbi Shimon ben Yehuda says, one is not a sin doing this unless you write there the name of a god, which is, became the sort of dominant majority rabbinic idea even in rabbinic times, Talmudic times. It wasn't the tattooing that was the problem. It was that other surrounding cultures used tattooing to place the names of their foreign, their idolatrous gods on their skin as an amulet to walk around like, you know, don't 
that kind of thing. People do, you know, hold up crosses against vampires or whatever you do. Same thing, you would, they would tattoo names of gods, their gods, on their bodies to protect them as a sign, as an expectation they would be protected. Since that's one of the major sins of the entire Torah is idolatry. And about half of the rules of the Torah are about how to avoid idolatry in various ways. That's what the, the prohibition about tattooing is fundamentally, not only, but fundamentally about that. Things that then became idolatrous, having the name of God. Yeah, Les, you have something? If I may. Uh, you may. To take you back to uh, the issue of cremation. Cremation, yeah. Uh, I'm coming up here. You mentioned it, that it was, cremation is viewed as a way of desecration of the body. Yeah. In Jewish and, tradition. In Jewish tradition. However, many Jews were burned during the Holocaust and at other times. So the question is... Tattooed also. Yes, exactly. Against Although not, not with... Against their will. Yeah. Yes. So the question is, is, does Judaism consider the burnt bodies desecrated or only when Jews do it? No. Ju- Jewish tradition would consider that what the Nazis did was desecrate Jewish bodies. By, by, yes, by putting Jews in ovens. Exactly. That part of the horror of not only did they murder them, which is horrible enough, and in attempted in genocide to wipe out all Jews, but then they did it by cremation, by totally evaporating the body and destroying the body in the worst possible way in Jewish tradition. So it was like, it was like a double horror in Jewish tradition. The individual certainly would not be considered culpable of desecrating his or her own body. It wasn't against, it was against their will. Um, same with the tattoo, you know, that, that of being tattooed in a, in a concentration camp. Um, which is part of the reason that people, uh, are reminded uh, that it's a myth that you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery if you're tattooed. You can be buried in a Jewish cemetery with tattoos. It happens all the time. Um, there is no prohibition against burial. If you have a tattoo, there's a prohibition in the Torah against tattooing, you know, idolatrous names of God on your body. So um, uh, it's um, uh, it goes back to Maimonides. Maimonides says that tattooing itself is a form of idolatry. So uh, you know, any tattooing is as if you're as if you're making your body more important than anything else by doing using body art. So he was against anything, no matter what you did, because he said this was a custom among pagans who marked themselves for idolatry, so you shouldn't do it because it makes it look like you're doing pagan things, no matter what you're putting on you. you know? um, and um, However, remember I said something last time, those of you who were here, that I'll say again because it's a fundamental principle of how to understand sacred writings, certainly Jewish sacred writings, which is... If it says don't do it in the Torah, that means people are doing it. If it says do it, that means people are not doing it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to say those things. So anytime there's a prohibition that says thou shalt not something, that's because people were shouting. They were doing it. And if it says thou shalt do this, that means people were not doing it, and the people who wrote the Torah wanted you to do it. So the very fact, say biblical scholars, that there is a prohibition in the Torah against tattooing is only there for one reason. People were tattooing themselves. 
People have always been tattooing themselves. It's not just something that your kids invented, you know, in the last 10 years. People have always been tattooing themselves. It's just, and so therefore, and part of the Torah, you have to remember, from the grand view of looking at Torah, sacred Jewish writings, the overall purpose, in a sense, of all of the mitzvot in the Torah is to make us unique and separate from other people. Is to is community building. That is, other people do this, so we don't do it. Other people eat that, so we don't eat it. People tattoo, so we don't. Whatever. There's a huge body of literature about most of the mitzvot in the Torah could all be related to how to create us as a separate, unique people that would survive as a community in a world that's bigger than us. So, the Jewish dietary laws are the easiest, perfect example of that. If you can't eat with someone, you're not going to marry them. Right? So, to how to keep a, a community separate? Tell them they can only eat this when everybody else is eating something else. You know, that's how people socialize around food and meals all the time. So, and that's just the easiest one to look at. But most of those, lots of, majority of Jewish mitzvot, really, and rituals, are about how to create a sacred community that is unique and that, that is self-referential and that will survive in a world that's bigger than us, no matter where we are. And it's pretty much worked for the last number of thousands of years. We're still around, in spite of the fact that there's no reason for us to be around for lots of reasons. Not just because everybody was out to kill us, which of course is also true, but not just for that reason, but because we've been all over the world, this little teeny group of people with in big, huge majority populations that weren't us. What has kept us still around is that we have created a religious civilization that has customs and traditions that have held people's interest and commitment that we keep showing that you're still here. You all came to synagogue. You're still around when there's a million other things you could have done tonight. I know it's my charm. But there's a million other things you could have done, and here you are. You know, and most of you belong to the synagogue. And there's a million other things to do, but you still choose to belong to a synagogue, even after all these years. You know, when there's lots of good reasons not to. To do other things with your time and other things with your money and all that other stuff. But there's something compelling about being a part of something bigger than ourselves. Well, look at the time. Um, and th that's what Jewish rituals are about. So anytime it says don't do something, so look at that. I hardly got through any of these because of the way I talk, isn't it? Um, body piercing. I'll just finish that. There's nothing inherently wrong with body piercing, really. Uh, after all, if you look at the Torah, our matriarchs had body piercings, they had earrings, they had... Uh, Rebecca has a nose ring, clearly, as you can tell in the Torah. So, you know, there's nothing fundamentally wrong about that. Uh, it's really uh, only about whether you end up worshipping your own self-image more than you worship something that's higher than yourself. So, here I have, what does Judaism teach about heaven and hell? Next time. What does Judaism teach about immortality of the soul, some of which I mentioned? Um, Jewish mourning practices, how to handle grief. What's the role of angels in Judaism? Ugh, too bad, I was going to talk about that tonight. This week's Torah portion, this week's Torah portion is by Yetzeh. It's the famous story 
got a minute. It's the famous story of Jacob, who's running away from his brother Esau, because, of course, he stole all of his blessings and is a nasty kid. And he's running away to Haran, and it's the middle of the night, and he's scared, and he's out in the desert. And so, as it says, Be'yitzah Yaakov mi'be'osheva, Be'yel Haran, he leaves Be'osheva, he's going to Haran. He comes to a certain place, he puts a rock down for a pillow, he goes to sleep, and he has a dream, and you've all heard this dream. And lo, a ladder, a sulam, was on the ground, going up from the ground to heaven. And as you know, angels, Malachi angels, were going up and coming down. And God stood next to the ladder and said, I am Adonai, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land which you are lying on, I'm giving to you and your descendants. Your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread Yama v'Kedma Tzafon v'Negma. It's a good popular Israeli song. You will spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. And one of my favorite phrases in the entire Torah, the Nivrechu Bacha Kol Mishpachot Adama should only be through you and your descendants, all the families of the earth will find blessings. That's really what our challenge is as Jews, as human beings. It's the challenge God gave to Abraham. Here is the challenge God gave to Jacob in this week's Torah portion. <coughs> to be a blessing. To act in such a way that all of the families of the earth all of the nations of the earth will be blessed because of what you and your descendants do. We Jews are always going like this and patting ourselves on the back. Look how many Nobel Prize winners we have. Look at how many, you know, which is something to be proud of. Look at Israel and all of its great startups and all of the amazing things, all of which is true and all of which I am proud of. It's the fulfillment of what this is about. Because ultimately it's not about what happens after you die that matters. It's what happens while you're living that matters. Because if you do life right, it kind of doesn't matter what happens after you die. When you do life right, the idea is that death will take care of itself. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And what matters is living your life in such a way that all of the families of the earth become a blessing. The reason I read that was not because of that. The reason I read that was because we're introduced to angels in this week's Torah portion. A clear, powerful, obvious Jewish idea from the Torah, many different places, that there are malachim, there are angels. Angels are mess- angels take on many forms. I'm going to talk about it next time. One of them is this form. One of them are malachim, which are messengers. Messengers of God. How do you know when you bump into an angel? That's the question that I want you to think about. How do you know when you bump into an angel? I married an angel, but other than that... How do you know when you bump into an angel? That's why she comes to these things. How do you know? How do you know? Because in Jewish tradition, angels are messengers. This is how God talks to you. Most people don't have God show up next to them as Jacob does and go, hey, I got a message for you. It comes through, me- through messengers. And one of the great challenges of life is to keep your eyes out for angels. Look for the angels. What do they look like? Do they show up in big wings? Or, you know, sometimes an angel can be your oncologist. Angels come in many different forms. I'll give you the traditional version next time because I'm supposed to stop now and I can talk for hours and ever. Um, but I want to thank you for coming. And if you have a qu- here's a couple things. One, 
You can reach me at one word, Rabbi Rubin, that's R-A-B-B-I-R-E-U-B-E-N, at ourki.org, rabbirubin.ourki.org. Or you can call me or you can just drop in. If you have questions that you want to make sure I deal with next time, make sure I deal with next time, because I'm going to deal with the rest of the list that was there last time, feel free to email me and let me know. If you want to just come in and talk about angels or whatever, I'll do that too. And that's number one. Number two, there are cookies out there. Yes? There are cookies out there. Thank you for the cookies. Winnie? And number three, I don't know what number three is. Anybody have a number three? Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thank you.